Ladies, I'm going to ask you again to imagine yourselves as a, a young bride. On the last day of a wonderful honeymoon week spent on, on some distant shore, you have just arrived back at DFW Airport with your new husband, and you're in the car with him, riding back to, to his little apartment where you expect to, to begin your married life. But along the, the route, he, he asks you to close your eyes and keep them closed tightly. And then he makes a turn, and then another turn, and another turn, and then he pulls into what's clearly a driveway, and he stops. And he walks around, gets out, walks around to your side of the car, and he helps you out of the car so you don't bump your head because your eyes are still tightly closed. And he walks you up to a certain point and points you in a particular direction, and then with a very excited voice, he says, Sweetheart, open your eyes. And so you open your eyes and you look, and right in front of you is this, this beautiful house. It's, it's the very kind of house that you had envisioned that you would, you would have chosen for starting a family. And so he, he picks you up in his arms and he carries you across the threshold of the front door and he sets you down in the foyer and he says to you, my darling, this is our place. This is where we are going to live together with one another. And you, you walk through the house and of course you look through every cabinet and every closet and every room and you realize as you look at all that He has done and all that He's prepared that He thought of everything. He left nothing undone. He knows you so well. And He made this place a wonderful place for you to live with Him. And so you pull out your cell phone and you start calling all your friends. And within an hour, the house is filled with your friends. And they're spilling drinks on the new carpet that your husband had installed. And they're dropping food into the crevices of the, of the new furniture that he had, had bought for this house. And they're knocking beautiful pictures off the walls that he chose just so that you would love them. And he comes to you over and over and he says to you, my darling, what are you doing? But you just push him aside with a cold shoulder so you can get back to your friends. And after this goes on for some time, your husband finally reaches the end of his forbearance and he chases all of your friends out of the house. And he comes to you and he says, I can take no more. This is too much. How would you think things were going to go from that point forward? In Zechariah chapter 8, as the chapter begins, God has just indicted the Judahites for the great hypocrisy of their fasts. During the whole time that they were in captivity in Babylon, and during the whole time since they got back, which is almost two decades, and he pointed out to them that their pious-looking fasts and their feasts of celebration were not really for, for him. And he reminded them of his great wrath toward their forefathers for the same kind of hypocrisy and unfaithfulness toward him. 
wrath that had provoked him to run them out of the land and to scatter them like a storm wind among the nations. In the second verse of chapter 8, God makes the same declaration that He made in the first chapter of this book. He says, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. And then He adds, with great wrath I am jealous for her. And that word great wrath is from a root that means hot. Very hot. God is saying, I'm angry with a fury against you because of my jealousy for Zion. In chapter 1, God's jealous anger was directed against the nations that He had used to judge His people, to take them away into captivity, against Assyria and Babylon. He said they overstepped, they furthered the disaster. And so, because of His jealousy for Zion, He was angry against them. But here, that same jealous anger is tied to what he's just been saying in chapter 7 about Judah's unfaithfulness and hard-heartedness toward him. Now let's take stock for just a moment of some of the things that God has already laid out in this book about his intentions for this place that he calls Zion, this place they know as Jerusalem. In chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, God said, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it. My cities will again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. In chapter 2, verse 5, He said, I will be a wall of fire around it and I will be the glory in her midst. Jerusalem's midst. Chapter 2, verse 12, he said, The Lord will possess Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Chapter 3, verse 9, he said, I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. At the beginning of chapter 5, he says, I'm going to send a curse over this land. And I will purge the land of everyone who steals and of everyone who swears falsely in my name. And this curse will utterly consume their houses. The stones and the bricks of the house will come down. And then in chapter 7, after accusing Judah of fake feasts, he says, remember what I did to your fathers? when they turned away from me with hearts like flint and they refused to hear me, when I appealed to them over and over, I scattered them from my land among the nations like a storm wind. God's jealousy for His land, for this special place that He had set aside in order to dwell in the midst of His people, that jealousy had already caused him to toss his people out of the land. In the last verse of chapter 7, God says that because of their hardness of heart against him, his own people had made the beautiful land desolate. No matter how you approach this, 
God talks over and over about his jealousy for this place. And when you put the rebuke at the beginning of chapter 7 about the fast together with the review of their father's generation at the end of chapter 7, the implication is clear. God is saying to this new crop of Judahites, shall I do to you what I did to your fathers? So when chapter 8 begins with God's second declaration of His jealousy for Zion and of His great wrath, that wrath is now directed against His own people. And He's about to lay out for them what He's going to do to satisfy that exceedingly great jealousy. If you were in Zechariah's audience on that day, would you expect that pleasant things or unpleasant things were about to happen? But you don't have to look very hard in chapter 8 to realize that something very unexpected is afoot. (laughs) Even before you drill down to the specific content in this chapter, there are some very big clues that something radically different is going on here than what has been presented previously. Just look at the speech formulas where God is the one who's speaking, where it says, thus says Yahweh of hosts, or thus declares Yahweh of hosts. Those formulas occur 12 times in this chapter. And I looked hard, and as far as I can tell, that's more times than in any other chapter of the Bible. Look at at chapter 8 at the beginning. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts. Verse 3, thus says the Lord of hosts. Verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts. Verse 6, thus says the Lord of hosts. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts. And so on and so on. There's something interesting going on here. And the phrase, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of armies, occurs 18 times in this one chapter. And that again is more It's a higher density than in any other chapter of the whole Bible. Something is going on here that's different. There's also, a just at the structural level, there's a change of subjects. In chapter 7, the subjects of the verbs were second and third person plural. When you, Judah, when you fasted and mourned, when you eat and drink, But they, your forefathers, refused to pay attention. They stopped their ears from hearing. They made their hearts like flint so that they could not hear. But in this chapter, I am. I will. Behold, I am going to. Just as I purposed, I have now purposed. I. Over and over and over. This chapter is about what God is going to do entirely of his own initiative to satisfy his exceedingly great jealousy for Zion. So what is it that he will do? Well, first, he says that he will dwell in his land. Chapter 8, verse 3, he says, I will return to Zion and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. God is saying, I am going to return to this place that I have prepared to be my dwelling place. Nothing's going to stop that from happening. 
My presence in this place will make it holy. That's what God's presence always does. God will dwell in His land. And then in verses 4 and 5, He says that He will prosper His land. He says there are two, two different parts to this. First part deals with old men and old women, and the second part deals with kids. And those are two, two, age, two ends of the age spectrum to represent all kinds of people. He says, old men and old women will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each old man with his staff, his cane in his hand, because of the multitude of days that he has lived out. And verse 5 says, the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing. Now if these illusions are literal, they would appear to be talking about the time of the millennium, since there will be no infirmity and thus no old men leaning on canes in the New Jerusalem. In any case, the picture here is of people of all ages filling the city, all of them enjoying life in full measure, in a place of great safety and of abundant provision. Now that matches up with God's declaration earlier in chapter 1, verse 7, 17, when he said, My cities will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. In verse 6, God addresses the doubters. It's a very interesting verse. He says, Thus, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is too difficult in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, will it also be too difficult in my sight? Declares the Lord of hosts. And the word translated too difficult is the word that you find over and over in the Old Testament translated wonderful. In fact, it's a name ascribed to Jesus in Isaiah 9. The word means something that is so amazing that it presses the boundaries of credibility. This verse reminds me of the the gentle jab that the Lord gave to Sarah and Abraham in Genesis 18 when he appeared in the form of a man and met with Abraham. And he told Abraham, he said, this time next year, your wife Sarah is going to bear a child, the covenant son. And (laughs) the text says, well, Sarah was advanced in age and she was past the manner of women. That means she was postmenopausal. She was biologically unable to have a child. And so Sarah, who overheard this conversation between Abraham and this person, laughed in her heart, not out loud. But the, angel, the, the, the man talking with, with Abraham, who, by the way, is called, in the passage, is called simply Yahweh, said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? And then he says, is anything too incredible for Yahweh? And it's the same word that's used twice here in Zechariah. And of course, (laughs) a year later, Sarah indeed bore the promised covenant son. And God gave that son a name. And his name was Isaac. And what does Isaac mean? He laughs. And Sarah's laughter of unbelief was turned to laughter of great joy. 
because she saw the faithfulness of God to carry out His covenant promises. God is saying here through Zechariah to His people Judah, if the remnant of the people that is in the land, when these promises are fulfilled, finds it incredible that such things could happen, does that mean that I am supposed to find it incredible? (laughs) My ways are not your ways. And then... God immediately makes the whole scenario even more incredible. In chapters, in verses 7 and 8, God declares that He will make His people His people. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am going to save My people from the land of the east and from the land of the west, and I will bring them back And they will live in the midst of Jerusalem and they will be My people and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. I believe the reference to God saving His people from the land of the east to the land of the west is simply, it simply means I'll save them in every place under the sun where they may be found. He'll seek them out every place on the face of the earth and He will bring them back to live in the midst of Jerusalem because that's where He is coming back to live. And they will be My people and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. It's as if God is saying, now you may find it incredible. You may find it amazing to think that I'm actually going to redeem this place. Look at the history of this place. You may find it amazing that I'm going to come and live here and that I'm going to make this place holy by my very presence. You may find it incredible that I'm going to fill the gates of this city with people and with prosperity and with abundance and it will be safe like no place has ever been safe. But you want to know something even more incredible? You will be that people. You whose fasts have been a facade of piety while you pursued your own desires instead of my desires. You whose fathers turned away from me with hearts like flint and refused to hear me when I spoke. You whom I cast out of my land in judgment and who profaned my name in the nations to which I sent you. You will be that people who will dwell together with Me in My land. I will make you return to Me that I may return to you. The passage here in Zechariah 8 follows the same wonderful pattern that you find in Ezekiel chapter 36. You want to look at an incredible passage? Go look at that one. In Ezekiel, God sternly rebukes Israel Because when He sent them away to Assyria in captivity, they profaned His name in that nation to which He sent them. The verb to profane means to treat as common instead of as sacred and special. Instead of responding to God's judgment, God's chastisement of them by humbling themselves and obeying Him, Instead of taking the opportunity to demonstrate to that pagan nation what it means to worship and serve the one true God, 
they shamed the name of God. In Ezekiel 36, verses 22 and 23, God declares that He's about to vindicate His name. Verse 23, He says, I will vindicate the holiness of My great name which has been profaned among the nations which You have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord God, when I prove Myself holy among you in their sight. Now, if you had been an Israelite in Ezekiel's day when he spoke those forceful words from Yahweh, what would you think was going to happen next? We've looked at this passage before, but it is one of the most wonderful paradoxes in all of Scripture. It's incredible, it's marvelous. Because then God reveals how He is going to vindicate His holy name. And here's how He's going to do it. For I will take you from the nations. I will gather you from all the lands and I will bring you into your own land. And then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes. And you will be careful to observe My ordinances. And you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be My people and I will be your God. Now, if you can't make the connection between that passage and the one we're in right now, you're not paying attention, right? The themes are identical. How will God satisfy His exceedingly great jealousy for Zion? By fulfilling every single one of His covenant promises 100%. He will come and dwell in His land and He'll make it holy by His very presence He will prosper that land and make it a place of safety and great abundance. And He will restore His people to that land and dwell among them. And He will be their God and they will be His people. And when He says, I'm going to restore them, He means He's going to restore them. He's going to change them. He's going to turn their hearts and make them return to Him. He's not just going to bring them back to the place. He's going to bring them back to Himself. This is God's promise to His covenant people. In verses 9-17, through things change up a little bit because now we see some exhortations. Verse 9 starts with, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong. You who are listening in these days to these words from the mouth of the prophets. Let your hands be strong. Verses 9-17 through 17 have exhortations at the beginning, the middle, and the end. And intertwined with those exhortations are God's repeated declarations about how things are going to be radically different going forward than they were before. There is no if-then language here. There are no warnings about the consequences to Judah if they don't do the things that he's commanding in this passage. Quite the opposite. 
God says He will not impose the consequences on them that He imposed on their fathers. There are three dramatic changes that God declares He will bring about in verses 9-17. through And they're all unilateral. That means one direction. They all depend only on God's resolve to make them happen. These changes are presented in the form of three stark contrasts between how things were and how they're going to be. The first contrast in verses 9 through 12, God says, Before <laughs> there was poverty and strife in the land. He says, when, they, when the Judahites returned to the land from Babylon, there was no wage for man and there was no wage for animal. People were in poverty no matter how hard they worked. He says that there was fierce opposition from the enemies in the land. That was talked about in Ezra. And even within the community of the Judahites who had come back from Babylon, there was strife. And all of that was ultimately God's doing. Because God says at the end of verse 10, I set men one against another. It was God who had frustrated their efforts to rebuild. But there's a radical shift in verse 11. God says, but now, I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts, for there will be peace for the seed. The vine will yield its fruit. The land will yield its produce and the heavens will give their due and I will cause the remnant of this people to inherit all these things. God will bring blessing and prosperity to the people who will dwell in His land. And it is on the basis of that dramatic shift, that change, that God exhorts His people to be strong as they work on the rebuilding of the temple, on the stage setting for His return. The second dramatic change that's going to happen is in verse 13. And there's two just as so clauses. One in verse 13, one in verses 14 to 17. Just as you were a curse, Judah and Israel, just as you were a curse among the nations, now I will save you that you may become a blessing. You know what that is? That's the Abrahamic covenant fulfilled in the New Covenant. Where did the the declaration that God's people would be a blessing to others originate? Genesis 12, verses 1-3. through I will bless you, God said to Abraham, and I will make your name great, and I will make you a blessing, and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God is declaring that He's going to make that happen. And on the basis of that promised change by which God will turn His people from a curse among the nations to a blessing, He repeats the exhortation, do not fear, let your hands be strong. He's saying, finish the temple. Prepare the way for my return. And do so from a position of confidence, of strength. Because I am not going to deal with you the way I dealt with your forefathers. I am going to make you a blessing. And then there's a third dramatic change. 
Another just so or just as and so clause in verses 14 to 17. Thus says the Lord of hosts, just as I purposed to do harm to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I have not relented, so I have again purposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. So twice in this extended passage, he says, do not fear, let your hand be strong. God is saying to his people, these things that I'm commanding of you, all this stage setting that I've entrusted to you to prepare for my return, do these things, not out of fear that I will again do you harm, but with certainty that I will do you good. Now at the end of last week's message, I posed a question. It's as close as I ever get to a cliffhanger. I said, when we realize that our pious actions don't come from pious hearts, what's the solution? How does that get fixed? And then I kind of left that dangling and I said, chapter 8 answers that question. Well, here, I believe, is God's answer. We already saw the most foundational part of the answer and that is simply that what will change our hearts is God. God will turn the hearts of His people. But how will that change come about? What will that look like from our point of view? God had given these same commands to generation after generation of His people. Look in verse 16. Zechariah 8.16, these are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. Let none of you devise evil in your hearts against one another. He accused them of doing exactly that in chapter 7. Do not love perjury. For all these are what I hate, declares the Lord. None of those are new commandments. And generation after generation of Israelites and Judahites had violated those commandments. They had brought shame on the name of God and on God's land. The two things that God declares repeatedly in the Old Testament that He's jealous for. His name and His land. And through the prophets, God told Israel what they deserved because of the unfaithfulness of their hearts and the wickedness of their actions. And for a time, He gave them what they deserved. (laughs) He sent other nations to yank them out of the land to carry them with hooks under their chins into captivity in places that were foreign to them. And He did so to humble them. But now, He declares that He's going to do things very differently than He has in the past. He promises to give His people what they don't deserve. In fact, the exact opposite of what they deserve. He promises to gather them from everywhere under the sun to bring them back to His land, to bless them and make them prosper and to turn their hearts so that they will be His people and a blessing to all the nations. On the basis of those promises, He states commands that He has stated over and over and over again, but they're in a very different context. So what changed? God's purpose. He says, just as I purposed to do you harm, so I now purpose to do you good. Do you good? God's not reacting to what His people have done or not done. That's not the way God works. 
He's acting. And he's acting exactly in keeping with the program of redemption that he set, that he set into play before the foundations of the world. By this point in Israel's and Judah's history, God had proven in every conceivable way that his plan to fulfill his covenant promises was never going to happen if their success at covenant keeping had anything to do with it. But that's a big problem because his covenant declarations over and over require that his people be holy. How can God come, a holy God, come and dwell in the midst of his people? If his people are unholy, he has to redeem and make holy not only his place, but the people who will dwell in that place. So what's the solution? God is the solution. He will do it all. Because if he doesn't do it all, it doesn't get done. Dramatic change of strategy that God presents in this passage, the change that so radically benefits Judah is unilateral. But unilateral is not the same thing as unconditional. That is a grievous mistake that we make. I don't even know where it came from. It didn't come from the Bible. The notion that the outworking of God's gracious covenant promises that depends only on His faithfulness gives Him no claim over us is utter foolishness from a biblical perspective. Imagine that you're a slave, which should be a short trip because that's exactly what God says you are. Let's, let, let's say you're a slave who is owned by the, the most evil and vicious and merciless master that the world has ever known. Your life is harsh and unrelenting. And because you're a slave, you have no prospect of doing anything about it. You are helpless and you are hopeless. But then one day, the most benevolent and loving of all masters comes and pays the price to buy you for himself. Did you have anything to do with the transaction that changed you from one serving one master to serving another? No. Slaves don't get to pick their masters any more than first-year pro football players get to choose the team they end up on draft day. Slaves don't pick their masters. But there's another very important question. Once that change occurred, are you any less a slave? No. It's not your status as a slave that changed, it's your master that changed. It was a unilateral act on the part of your new master that brought about that change, and it didn't depend on you at all. But to say that that means nothing is required of you, as the slave of your new master, would be utter foolishness, not to mention abominable ingratitude, because now you've got a master who's actually worthy of your faithful and diligent service. So what must you do? You must serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength out of love. If you belong to Jesus Christ, that story is your story. Read Romans 6. We have been buried with Christ in the likeness of His death and raised up with Him in the likeness of His resurrection in newness of life. And 
Paul says, therefore, count yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. Submit the members of your body as slaves of righteousness and of God. Joyful, willing slaves. That's what verses 9-17 through are about in this passage. They're about the absolute claim that God's grace toward you has on you. Now, which half of that radical transformation that God is talking about in this chapter results in willing obedience in the hearts of God's people? The judgment part or the blessing part? The part where God purposed to do them harm or the part where God purposes to do them good? I believe with all my heart that the answer is both. And this is a change for me. It's something that that I think God has been working to show me through His Word and to show all... I think he, it's in here. It's just for us to see. But it's hard for us to grasp. See, we think, we think that judgment doesn't get anyone anywhere. And that it's not until we see grace that we actually come around. Just bear with me for a minute. Here, I believe, is the consummate and perfect motivation for godliness. Fear united with love. It would be easy to conclude that God changed tracks from judgment to grace because judgment just didn't get the job done. But that's not how things work with God. He doesn't try one thing and then make a change when it doesn't work. Every bit of what God did in all of His dealings with His people throughout history was charted out before His people even existed. Israel and Judah had to experience God's hatred of their sin and His fearsome judgments in order to know the magnitude of God's amazing grace. And so do we. Here is the consummate and perfect motivation for godliness. Fear united with love. It's not one of those. It's both. For us who have the fullness of the revelation of Jesus Christ, the most compelling proof that we have of God's fierce wrath and fearsome hatred of our sin is the terrible death of His own beloved Son in our place. And the most compelling proof that we have of God's astounding, incredible love and of His amazing grace is the terrible death of His Son in our place. A little later in this book, we're going to see that that same event, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, is what will bring this people to repentance. They will look upon Him whom they have pierced and they will mourn. And they'll get it. What is it that ultimately and finally makes us willing servants of God? God does. And what is it that motivates that that willing service? It's the fear of God's holiness united with love in response to the love that He has shown to us. It's a combination of both of those right responses to all that God is and to all that God has done that produces godly obedience. 
For the rest of eternity, beloved, we will bear witness to one another of the fearsome holiness of our God and of the surpassing love of our God. But the transforming benefit of that wonderful knowledge starts right here and right now. Knowing that we deserve nothing but condemnation from His hand. But that we have received salvation and blessing and every good and perfect gift from His hand. And that we are destined to dwell as His redeemed people in His redeemed place, in His perfect and holy presence. We are thus made ready to be joyful bondservants of the living God. Right here and right now. And on that score, God finishes this passage with one more look at His amazing incomparable grace. One more preview of His plan to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah to make them a blessing to all the nations. And in that, along with that preview, there's one final exhortation. Verses 18 to 23, God will transform Judah's fasts into feasts. And they won't just be feasts for Judah, they will be feasts for all the nations. Israel's calling as a kingdom of priests, as a holy nation, will finally be fulfilled. Verses 20 to 23, I'm going to read this. Just listen. Thus says Yahweh of hosts. Well, let me start at verse 18. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth months will become joy, gladness, and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. So love, truth, and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, it will yet be that peoples will come, even the inhabitants of many cities, and the inhabitants of one will go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of Yahweh and to seek Yahweh of hosts. I will go also. So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor And that word is grace, to entreat the grace of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from the nations of every language will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Israel will finally get to fulfill their calling as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation the calling that God gave to them in Exodus 19 just before the Ten Commandments. And we who are grafted in to the promises that God has made to His people will be a blessing too. To all the nations, there's one simple exhortation in this last part of chapter 8. It is so love, truth, and peace. What does that mean? So love, truth, and peace. It means delight. Delight in that which is true of God Himself. Truth and peace are covenant words that occur over and over in the Old Testament that have to do with God fulfilling His promises. We're not people of truth and we're not people of peace in and of ourselves. But He's going to make it so. 
Delight in being like your covenant-keeping God. Why? Because when you know Him, nothing else makes sense. That's the way His people live. If you were that wayward bride that I talked about at the beginning of this message, how would you respond if at the end of that scene, your husband, instead of doing to you what you deserved, declared his resolve to do nothing but good to you? Never to waver from his steadfast love toward you. To pour out blessing upon blessing to you. Until the time came that you responded to his love with joyful faithfulness and service. That's your story. That's my story. That's our destiny. That's what God is doing. And he's doing it in everything through everything that happens to you every day. Not just through the the things that are pleasant, but through the things that are painful. He's doing His perfect work in your heart so that you will be prepared for His return. And so that you will be a very able and useful stage setter for His return. That's the way He works. I pray that we'll get that. We'll be entirely on board with that program (laughs) because it's a marvelous, wonderful, incredible agenda that God has set before us. Dear Father, thank You again for the power of this book and for the power of this chapter, Lord. We who deserve only condemnation have been given everything in Christ. May we see both sides of that clearly, Lord. May we know the fearsomeness of Your holiness, of Your hatred of our sin. And in the light of that, may we know the incomparable magnitude of Your grace. That we may be driven, Father, irresistibly, to love You and serve You, to be a blessing to You and to be a blessing to men. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.